นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสังสัง Of, of what we're doing here, sitting together for quite a long period of time each day, and the uh, the comment here refers to my six-point plan for body mindfulness, and perhaps what I didn't say and should have said at the beginning was that uh, these are my own suggestions. This is not some ancient magical formula. That uh, all the arahants use. Excuse me if I, I misrepresented the, the suggestions. They're only pointers which aim to uh, help to bring increased presence in the body. They're, um, they're not uh, any, as I say, any magical formula, or they're not a guarantee. I have found them very helpful, and and they also the sort of points that I've heard. Mentioned by a good number of other teachers over the years. The question says, in the six points of reference to the body, why the tip of the tongue behind the teeth? To stop the jaw clenching shut, or as a meditation object in itself, or bridging the gap in the meridian line. It's along with the other points the the tendency we have. In practice, to get caught up in our stuff, you know, we've all got plenty of stuff whirring around in our minds, and and the tendency that we have to get caught up in it, it registers in the body. And if we are prepared beforehand, before we get caught up, if we're prepared with these these points or these Or, if not just these six points, but with an overall uh, mindfulness in the body, then when tension does start to show itself in the body, we'll be there for it. Conversely, what can happen and what does often happen is that we can be meditating away and totally caught up in in some mind state. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I've, I've been around for a while, and I know well, some of you have as well. And you can just look at somebody when you're sitting, and you can get a reading of what's going on. And you know, the shoulders are up around the ears. Well, that's pretty obvious what's going on, or or if the chest is all caved in, and or if there's a slouching, or, or if the head is tipping back. You know, some people are dreaming away. <laughs> Embarrassing, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, if with the tip of the tongue, with the tip of the tongue lightly touching behind the teeth, if you notice when you're caught up in, in in some mind state, see what you're doing with your tongue. And uh, and there is actually a reference the Buddha did talk about when you're caught up in some mind states and 
you can't do anything about them, then all you can do is just go to press your tongue against the roof of the mouth and just endure it. There are such mind states that all you can do is endure, and there's a tremendous amount of energy. And However, we don't want to be spending all our time uh, pressing our tongue up against the roof of the mouth. That's not helpful. Likewise, with the, uh, the teeth just slightly apart, look what you're doing with your teeth when you get caught up in some mind state, how easy it is to be clenching the teeth and not exactly grinding them but clenching them shut and or sometimes you might catch yourself sucking your tongue you know, certain mind states that trigger such a reaction so that's what it's about it's not to be a meditation object in itself per se however all these six points I've developed them myself over the years and I do find them phenomenally helpful just to maintain with with sleepiness, if you're getting caught up in sleepiness, and come back to these six points, and or if you're anxious about something, you come back to these six points again, and it gives a frame of reference. So, I encourage people not to wait until they're caught up, not and wait until things are getting difficult, but to use these in advance to train to prepare oneself and uh, during the time sitting through the retreat like this I think it's skillful to you know, put a couple of sittings at least aside to spend a good part of the time, you know, maybe 15 minutes of a sitting just going through these points the hook on the top of the back of the head that means the chin just gets tucked in a little bit as you're saying the teeth not quite closed and the tongue touching the roof of the mouth just behind the teeth the shoulders dropping down as if you've been carrying bags of buckets of sand and feel how that opens the chest up not using muscles I mean you could be pushing your chest out you could be pushing your lower back and pushing your belly out if you do that what happens is the energy all goes rushing up to the head and you get a terrible headache however to use these images if like with the belly, if you imagine you've got a belt around the waist and a rope pulling from the buckle forward, and just imagining that, then the lower part of the back just slowly, gently of its own over time curves in. And, and then the suggestion of imagining that we're in a competition to see who can squash their zafu flattest, and there's a, a reward of a, a holiday to Corfu or whoever has got the flattest zafu or some such place wherever you fancy the idea behind that being that we can be up in the head a lot of the time and and get very pulled out of the present moment pulled out of our body by our mental proliferations and if we can just really feel the cushion beneath us and really feel grounded just see if you can push your cushion through this oak floor right into the earth beneath us and it also can um, this it's a very slight sort of doing it's not a serious doing like with mindfulness of breathing you can you can fall into into uh, old habits of doing the meditation you know how concentrated can I get and, and I've got to focus harder and and what's the next stage of absorption that I'm going to attain to and 
and there can be a lot of me really doing the meditation there. And in as much as we're all already very seriously, uh, well, most of us, there may be a few exceptions, but most of us are seriously caught up in in uh, our desire for becoming and desire for getting and identified with this desire. This is me. Really feels like me wanting. And when I don't get what I want, then the passions really flare up. And that's the sign of how caught up in my desires I am. Then to let that also have free reign in our meditation is really unfortunate, really unskillful. So I always encourage people in practice, once you have some stability and some quietness of mind and <clears throat> the momentum of daily life has, has quietened down a little bit, then yeah. to practice sitting there in this mindful body posture, doing nothing else. You give up trying to meditate. You give up trying to concentrate. You're just being present in the body. And then all sorts of mind states will arise. There will be all sorts of conditions arise in the mind, agreeable, disagreeable, and we don't have to do anything about them. The temptation is, and you can read the scriptures, and so you've got to get rid of the five nivaranas, and you've got to develop this stage and that stage, and, and that's well and good, but often it doesn't factor in how willful we are uh, in our effort. It doesn't factor in how, how caught up, how obsessed we are with desire, or how possessed we are with our self-views of inadequacy, and I've got to fix myself, I'm so hopeless, I've got to fix myself, and, and we can hammer away with a tremendous uh, effort, but totally caught up in the desire that I'm going to do this to fix myself. Now, that actually needs to be addressed before we engage some of the scriptural encouragements to get uh, too enthusiastic about attaining states. For a lot of us, what we really need to be doing is to give up trying to attain anything. Just a little sort of patience and humility, actually. Uh, kind of very rare qualities. And they, uh, Certainly, the Buddha praised them, and whenever we witness them in anybody else, we're always impressed by them, aren't we? I mean, you don't, you don't see somebody who's patient and humble and think, oh, what a creep. <laughs> you see somebody who's patient and humble and and gentle and kind and, and and the heart admires such a person such a being so in our effort in meditation uh, it's sometimes disengaging from the determined willful effort to progress and practice and concentrate harder to disengage from that can feel sort of you know well I'm wasting my time well that's alright I would just suggest be mindful of wasting your time. Mindfully waste your time. Sit there and feel, what does it feel like I am wasting my time? Because if we're being driven by fear that I'm wasting my time all the time, well that's not a very good motivation. The fear of I'm, always, I'm wasting my time, if that's motivating us all the time, that's not very good. We should actually stop and look at it. Mm. Not believe in it, not disbelieve in it, but look at it and and then when we've looked at it for a while, we might see that there's all sorts of other things behind it, like fear of uncertainty and, and actually the sort of things the Buddha really wanted us to look at. And, and we might discover that we don't need that much deep concentration 
We don't need that much uh, brilliance of mind. What we need is to connect with our heart's deep, sincere, natural interest in reality. For some of us, that's actually the theme that takes us to concentration. Contemplation takes us to stillness and bright, brightness of mind, not necessarily willful concentration. We need enough concentration to be able to know what's what and to not be caught up in things, but then if something comes up that's according with Dhamma, according with reality, and is really interesting to you, some theme comes up, and like fear, you know, fear of loss, or fear of wasting your time, or fear of failure. We don't have to keep trying to develop uh, deeper states of concentration so as to overcome fear. We can also actually let go of our meditation object and turn around and talk to fear, have a conversation. Ajahn Shah used to give the image, he said, like these mind states that come, he said, you want to treat them as like visitors coming into the coffee bar. Imagine you sit at the same coffee bar, which I know some of you do <laughs> every day, Colombian coffee, whatever the name of the store is, and you drink the same coffee, probably sit at the same table, same time every day, and maybe you know most of the people that come in there you recognize, but then if somebody comes in you don't really know, well you don't just dismiss them, and the fact is you're interested, and so you check them out, you say, who are you, where do you come from, and you get to know them, and once you've got to know them, well then it's all right, next time they come in you just go, mm, mm, mm. you don't have to engage them in a major meaningful sharing about all your feelings and your history and your traumas and your dream life and so on, every time you meet them, because you already know each other. Well, so it is with a lot of the things that disturb our so-called tranquility of mind. Just hammering away willfully at a meditation object is not necessarily going to work for us. Maybe what we need to do is actually turn around and look at it and say, hello, how are you? Sit down, let's have coffee together. Get to know them. And maybe they're a real ogre, a real monster. You know, fear can be monstrous torturous, abusive. And if we've stuffed it down in the basement for long enough, well, that monster is going to be really, really unhappy with us. And, uh, well, we did it. I mean, you can't blame them. I mean, we're the ones that stuffed it down there. Went upstairs in the attic and played with our computer and hoped it was going to go away. These things don't go away, actually. There's another question here, which I can get on to answering this question at the same time. What is emotion? I don't know what emotion is. I've been thinking about this question since it was given yesterday and and I don't know what emotion is and I'm not sure it's always so helpful really to try and figure out what things are. It's kind of like asking what is electricity? I don't know whether anybody knows what electricity is but what we can do is experience electricity. We know we can witness it as a kind of movement and we can study the activity of electricity. We can study our emotions. We know what this dimension of our being that we refer to by the word emotion. Uh, what it is, I mean, it's, it's a reasonable question because it's coming from a place of probably feeling frustrated by by emotion and, and wanting to come to terms with it, wanting to understand it. However, the, uh, the practice perspective on coming to terms with or coming to understand these things that appear to obstruct us is not necessarily always 
uh, served by asking what. Sometimes it's more useful to ask how. How do we receive our emotions? How does it feel to feel what we feel? How freely can we feel what we feel? When we feel regret or disappointment, do we go up to our head and say, what is this disappointment? What is it anyway? These little neurons firing off in my brain and and come up with an, an analysis of, of what... Somebody just rang me this evening from America. Somebody rings me from time to time and was telling me how, how they, they, their understanding of, of what when people are talking about going into different realms of existence is, is processing the kind of stored-up information in their brains in a, in a mythological way. And he had this, such a sophisticated interpretation of what it was all about. It, it um, seemed to seemed to make sense to him. I couldn't really understand what he was talking about. And, and to be honest, I, I don't actually really feel that understanding why or what something is, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't take me to a place of resolution. Yet when I do ask, how does it, how does it feel when I feel what I call emotions? Or... How freely can I receive what I call emotions? What it does, as I look at that, little by little, it takes me more and more into a kind of relationship with what I call the emotional realm that actually feels uh, decent. Stuffing these things down in the basement actually is indecent, downright abusive. And sadly, in our lives, early on in life, we didn't all have marvellous examples of people who knew how to be completely accommodating with their own emotional household and, and some of us had, had fairly neurotic um, encounters in our early life and we, we take on the habits of those people that we, we live with and so we pick up these habits of stuffing stuff into the basement hoping it will go away but as years go by we we start feeling like there's something missing. There's, uh, there's like a big kind of empty, empty feeling in our stomach or empty feeling in our heart. And, and, and people say, well, I just feel there's something missing. There's something lacking. And it's great for the consumer society that people have this because that's what it runs on. You know, you can just all this stuff that, that they hock off on perfume counters and, and so on to convince people that, that they, they can cover up the, their feeling of something lacking or, or uh, restaurants you know, these days you know, the um, amount of attention that affluent society puts into uh, gustatory activity it's uh, quite phenomenal really I mean, how much food do we need I read the section of the weekend magazine we get, sometimes people give us newspapers on the weekend and there's there's a weekend magazine there and they have these glossy pictures of food and it's quite extraordinary what people seem to eat these days. I mean, you couldn't even live on this little weeny bit of something in the middle of a, a posh plate just, and it looks like a piece of graphic art rather than a meal. And of course, that's what it is. People are not eating because they need to eat. It's just it's a designer exercise. And 
or you know, some of the outrageous um, so-called sports. Uh, I was staying at somebody's house in Leeds recently and saw this program called Extreme Sports. And the things that, that, uh, that you can do these days in the name of sport is quite phenomenal. Well, it seems to me that the only reason for behaving in such an extraordinary way is to try and compensate for feeling something missing. And what this practice encourages actually is that instead of trying to fill it up all the time with hamburgers or perfumes or extreme sports or whatever, that we can, if we discipline attention carefully and skillfully, we can turn around and, and feel it. What is this feeling of I want? I want. And I, I feel something's missing and there's something lacking in my life. I'm, I'm not all here. And if we really listen to this, if we really, if this is our feeling, and it, I've known this feeling, I, I still know this feeling from time to time, I, I tune into this feeling, and actually rather than being an enemy, I'm pleased when I feel this feeling. When I really feel this feeling, I start to feel more honest and more alive. And when I receive this feeling of lacking, this, it's in the belly, solar plexus area, also, other things start to come into mind. You know, memories and feelings and sensations. And, and if I track them, if I follow them, if I listen to them, not getting lost in them, not getting caught up in them, not getting into arguments with them, but receiving them with kindness and patience, it's like there's all this unlived life that is the stuff, emotions that we didn't want to live through, didn't like, didn't agree with, and so we stuffed them in the basement. So no wonder we feel like we're lacking. We are lacking. There's all this unacknowledged life stuffed down there into unawareness that's unreceived, unlived through, and getting very antsy. It's very upset with us. And and sometimes, hence, all this growling noises coming from down below, and you go, oh my God, what's going to happen if I lift the lid off that? There's a very real fear that people have when they are alone, reach for the bottle, or roll some weed, or put on some good music, or do anything but feel this terrible feeling I'm going to be taken over by my... What is it it that's going to take me over anyway? Nobody. I mean, this is England, for goodness sake. (laughs) It's not some awful country full of tyrants running around. This is England. Sweet England. And the only thing that's going to take us over is our own wild nature. And so rather than asking what emotions are, I mean I can understand where that question might come from, but I'm not convinced that uh, an intellectual analysis of it really, really takes us very far. But certainly I would encourage that instead of asking what emotion is, to ask how freely can I receive myself in this domain that I call emotion? Can I feel what I feel when I feel things that I've been told I'm not allowed to feel? You're not allowed to feel this, you're not allowed to feel that. And if you're brought up as a, as a devout Christian as I was, you're not allowed to feel guilty. If you feel guilty, well that means you're out, you're going down. You're not allowed to feel guilty. And, and yet so many things that one does in life, at least things that I did in my life, I couldn't help but feel guilty about because they were fun. <laughs> It seems unreasonable to not be allowed to do all these things. And so one does them and then you feel guilty. You say, well, you're not allowed to feel guilty. So you stop, you pretend you don't feel guilty until you develop a, 
an awful habit of actually denying that you feel guilty when you feel guilty most of the time. And then whatever emotion or energy we've pushed down and, and head away into unawareness, it will come out in one of two ways. It will come out either as excess or as perversion. It's not, it's not something we have to agree with, but it's something that we can look at. If, if you push down anger, if you've been taught, you know, good boys don't get angry. Good boys don't get angry. And so most of the men I know are really afraid of anger really terrified of anger because we've been taught we're not allowed to feel angry and so you learn it very very early on in life by people who are supposed to know what what's what and so you um, take it on board and but as life goes by you, know, you can't stop feeling angry and if you've got a habit of pushing it down into the basement then it starts going funny on you and you get the result of either excessive anger which can um, if it's internalized, it turns into negative self-view, which is very common. I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I'm a hopeless case, I'm a failure, I failed everything, I just put on a face and pretend, but basically I'm damaged goods. You know, I hate myself so much, that's one form. Or if it's outwardly expressed, which is probably not the case of most meditators, most of us are kind of on the, the uh, introversion side of this line and but for those who are on the other it's outwardly expressed and you get the excessive violence and aggression that often comes out when people go drinking or other times or in relationships or in families and so on why because people are inherently bad I don't think so not at all but it's because anger is not understood Anger is not received, and so there's not a responsible relationship with anger, and so you get excessive anger, or you get perverted anger. Perverted anger in its internalized form is paranoia. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling like everybody hates me. Yeah. Everybody hates me. and Or externalized anger in this form comes out in all sorts of antisocial activity that that it, it looks so unreasonable. I mean, why would people be behaving like this? You know, what is it that makes people behave like this? Well, if we investigate in our own minds something like anger or desire or fear, these emotional states, and ask how freely can I feel what I feel when I feel these things, well, I think we'll get some indication of why the world is such a strange place. Mm. Do we really grow up learning to be mindful of fear? Or do we just project, project it outwards onto some imagined or even some real enemy? Or do we stop and come to terms with it? Well, of course, nobody is saying that there aren't real reasons for feeling afraid or real reasons for feeling angry or that desire is not real. These feelings or these emotions are real our task is how to ha actually come into a real relationship with them, whereby we're not misperceiving them, not reading them in the wrong way, which causes us to behave in a, in a way that increases suffering rather than frees us from suffering.
please give some guidance on how I can investigate my true self. And if there is no recognizable I, who or what knows that she or he is enlightened? I think somehow those questions go together. Talking about investigating my true self, I spoke a little bit about this a few days ago where I tried to encourage a a careful consideration on the Buddha's teaching on anatta and not grasping it as a as a position to take but rather as something to to look into and probably this is where this question is coming from could you please give some guidance into how I investigate my true self the the place that is encouraged to go within ourselves to contemplate is is not based on the assumption that I can find my true self but rather that the reason that we're suffering or the reason that we do suffer is because or the reason we ask a question like this reasonable question as it is the reason we ask it is because we have a feeling of having lost our true self. It's related to what I was saying a minute ago about part of me is missing. Where's the whole me? Where's the complete me? And we, we don't know who this real me is. We can follow the idea that I've got to do something to find myself. However, we can go in the opposite direction and actually look into the experience itself of not being my true self. So there's a, there's a quote, there's a teaching the Buddha gave, quoted in the Dhammapada, which says, seeing the false as the false, and the real as the real, we attain to the perfectly real. And so, rather than trying to go out there and find my true self, or go inside there and find my true self, with a feeling of, oh, I've got to do it, the practice of, of careful mindfulness or sensitive feeling investigation into how it feels to be this person, me. I don't feel whole, I don't feel all here, there's something missing, this is not the true me. We could go out trying to find the true me, or we could just say, well, what, what does this false me feel like? And so seeing the false as the false, if we bring mindfulness to bear on this and, and in formal practice where we can be sitting there and have a feeling of, I don't know, self-alienation or, or sometimes people talk about it just doesn't feel like me in this body. Or, and, and then they say, well, what, what is the true me? I would encourage actually feeling how we feel in the present moment, in our falseness, in our limitation. Mm. Instead of trying to become real, just receiving the feeling of falseness. And my experience of that is when we do that, it's like a door opens up. Instead of running away from ourselves when we meet ourselves, we don't like ourselves in our falseness. 
instead of running away from ourselves, actually receiving ourselves at that level. Or maybe it's an example of that we have an experience of, of actually seeing our falsity, like seeing, for instance, how how conceited we can be, putting up a putting up a front, always pretending to be something, and we're sitting quiet on our own and being still, not talking, not socialising. Such you know, sometimes this impression is just how full of dishonesty a lot of our life is, you see? How unreal. And, just how and we can just resent that and then say, well, I've got to get real. Well, sometimes we, we, we miss out on something if we do that. It might be more useful just to stay and just patiently receive ourselves, humbly receive ourselves in our falseness, in our falsity. So well, this, is, this is false. This is what it feels like to be false. And to feel disgust even I don't mean getting caught and lost in self-loathing, that's something else and not to be encouraged of course but just when we see how false we've been and, and to feel ashamed sometimes the deceit, the, the games we play with ourselves, the lies that we tell ourselves the lies we tell others you get a little quiet and inner and we start to see this stuff, it can be really repulsive and we can feel really ashamed and embarrassed about it, well Instead of rushing off and trying to get real and become honest, that can actually that can be really be an avoidance of of of, of what's really already happening. And we might distract ourselves with ideas of how we can be more real and so on. But if conversely we actually stop and sit and feel what we feel and feel what it feels like to meet ourselves at that level, that's seeing the false as the false. Well, that's false. And then the whole body mind learns. The feeling of feeling ashamed for having been inauthentic or dishonest or disingenuous, that feeling of feeling ashamed, if we just stay with it and feel it, then the whole body-mind learns the lesson. Now it can feel good to idealize about how we should be, but that's a very initial approach to practice. I would suggest that... Uh, the deeper we go, the, the more important it is to, to stop idealizing about how we should be and just be with this, be with this much. There's a, a commentary by that great Christian mystic, German Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart. He's commenting on something in the Bible where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, first you must deny yourself. And Meister Eckhart commenting on this, if I remember it correctly, says if you're going to deny yourself, first you've got to find yourself. And he's talking about introspection or meditation how we have to stop and look inside it's not just giving up sugar during Lent or such things it's actually finding yourself look inwards and finding yourself and when you find yourself you let yourself go we don't run away from ourselves and say oh I don't like myself that's so dishonest and that's so unreal and, and go and try and become real which is just another me pretending but when we find ourselves we meet ourselves when we meet ourselves and we really meet ourselves with sensitivity, with receptivity, with mindfulness, not with judgment, not with opinions about how we should be, just patiently bearing with the feelings that come, the fear, maybe I'm always going to be this way, maybe I'm always, maybe I'm inherently dishonest. Yeah. Maybe I really am damaged goods. That feeling, whatever it is, stay with it. 
and let it be completely what it is totally what it is I was reading yesterday I think it was um, a talk by Ajahn Chah that's been transcribed in between the sittings here I'm, I'm working on the final stage of, of uh, editing a manuscript for a new collection of Ajahn Chah's books that have recent, the talks have recently been transcribed translated um, by somebody who lives in America Paul Breiter and and in one of these talks, Ajahn Chah is talking about his own encounter with fear. And he was very courageous with it. He, he, uh, he was very daring. He would go off and live in the forest on his own, which is not like us living in the, in the bush here in, in, in England. It's just a nice holiday, really. You go off in a nice bush or Chithurst Forest and, and those nice cooties there. So it's really a, a lovely, thing, lovely thing to do. That's not what Ajahn Chah was talking about. It was going after the jungles, mosquito, malaria infected. It's full of snakes. I mean, real snakes, not just little weeny things. Real big monstrous snakes and tigers and bears that quite easily crush your skull and so on. And, and he would go off and stay in these places just so that he could encounter fear. And the way he talks about it, it sounds like his initial approach was one of trying to conquer it, trying to overcome it. And he would go here and he'd go there trying to overcome this fear. And he talks at one stage, you might have already read about his encounter with um, fear in the graveyard, where, again, unlike most of us, most of us are not terrified of ghosts and can walk through a graveyard without worrying about being afraid of ghosts. But that's not the case for most Thai people, even well-educated modern Thais that still have real terror about ghosts. And Ajahn Chah certainly did. And but he would purposely go and live in the charnel ground, put up his, 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 his mosquito net and his big umbrella it was, and sleep under this and sit meditation under this, and just so that he could encounter fear, because he wanted to know it fully. And he relates how one night he uh, was sitting there, he, he had an attendant, Anagarika, with him, and he told him to go off the other side of the forest so he'd be really alone. And then in the middle of the night he heard, oh actually there'd been, they'd just, there was a, they'd just burnt a corpse there. They'd um, just brought a body in from the village that earlier that day and, and he put his, um, his mosquito net right next to where the body had been burned and, and stayed there on his, on his own all night. And, and in the middle of the night he started hearing these footprints coming towards his mosquito net. He was sitting there in meditation and he described most vividly how he went into the state of absolute panic, just just freezing cold terror gripped him. But he went through it the whole night, actually he sat there the whole night with it, and he just decided, well, if it's going to kill me, let it kill me. Yeah. If there's something out there, let it come and eat me. And if there's nothing out there, well, then let my fear kill me. And instead of running away from the fear and trying to understand the fear, trying to analyze the fear, just as to embrace the fear, just... He decided, he said, well, let fear be completely frightening. How afraid can I be? How thoroughly afraid can I be? How full of fear can I be? And, and really doing everything to welcome the fear. And he talks about it also as, a, as an experience that was life-changing for him. And when in the morning, it, something, had, something very significant had shifted for him in that daring endeavor. Now... That doesn't mean to say that all of us have to rush off and, and do extreme sports or whatever it is that brings up fear in us. 
um, or go and stay in forests uh, uh, to challenge our fears or do anything dramatic. But I think the the story does symbolise very well what's called for in practice, that that if we want to find our true self or if we want to find authentic being, then it's not a matter of going somewhere else to get something more, but sitting still with ourselves when we meet ourselves in places that we haven't met ourselves before or places where we really don't want to meet ourselves, the place where we really don't want to know ourselves. The story of um, from the Jewish tradition I, I read somewhere some time ago, I can't remember where it was now, but it was a conversation between a young student and a rabbi, and the old rabbi very was very well known, highly respected, wise old rabbi, and the young Jewish student was asking the rabbi and saying, why is it, rabbi, why is it that these days you never hear anybody talking about seeing God anymore? In the olden times, people were always talking about seeing God, and we read about people encountering God, and, and the, the great mystics and masters of old were always seeing God all over the place, and but these days you never hear anybody talking about actually seeing God. And the rabbi said, well, it's because nobody knows how to stoop low enough. What that says to me is, I think, it's very relevant for practice, that we like to think that we need to get higher or develop more or go somewhere or do something. But really what's called for is to go deeper, to look closer, to look into the places within ourselves that we don't want to look at. You know, when the, the feelings arise of, I really don't want this, I really don't want this, I really, really don't want this. It shouldn't be this way. Yeah. Instead of actually believing in it and saying, well, it really shouldn't be this way and I'm just going to go out and do something about it, just to wait a bit. Just feel what it feels like. What, what does it feel like? What is the experience of feeling it really shouldn't be this way? Or I really don't want it this way? Even give voice to it. To actually say, I don't want this. I don't want this. Inwardly, I mean, don't go saying it out loud or somebody will lock you up. But just quietly to yourself, I don't want this, I don't want this. And using that mental noting technique, maybe eventually we'll come to a clearer perspective on it, which is actually the same as I want. I want and I don't want are exactly the same thing. And one of the reasons why we feel like we're so unreal or so inauthentic or so lacking is because a lot of our activity is a denial of desire. Even Buddhism can just be a sophisticated strategy of de avoiding accepting desire and, and its raw condition. And you read the Buddha's teaching that desire causes suffering and then we can just basically have an opinion against desire and it compounds an already existent disease whereby we're not allowed to feel wanting. As I said earlier this evening, early on in life, a lot of us are taught there's all sorts of desires we shouldn't feel, and so we just push them down in the basement until we develop a chronic habit of not being allowed to simply want. And if we can't want, well then we can't live responsibly. 
And so please be careful with the Buddha's teaching to not misuse it as a way of actually compounding our neurotic relationship to desire. We need to be able to know the feeling of wanting. I've observed this over the years for seeing seeing meditators, people who come to practice with with, uh, very high ideals and rather um, intellectual abstract notions of what practice means and as the years go by there's a certain sort of build up of tension until something breaks and they they actually start getting in touch with their desires. I'm talking here about monastics, monks and nuns, or monks anyway. And they start actually getting in touch with their desires and they start wanting things. And sometimes for the first time in their life they can actually feel they want. And one's got to be very, very careful at that stage because there's a certain appropriateness to allowing ourselves to want things. It's natural to want things. But it's very limited to actually allow ourselves to be defined by our wanting. But before we can really let go of wanting, before we can really even really investigate desire, we need to be able to allow ourselves to feel desire. In this, in this particular area, sometimes there's a conflict for people who have really got a need to do some psychological work before they get much deeper in their so-called, if I can use the expression, spiritual work. Mm-hmm. Some people are so obstructed in the area of, of uh, allowing themselves, giving themselves permission to want anything, that they can't even investigate these things. Mm-hmm. So wherever we're at in the progression of coming to terms with these things, it is the case that, that we all need to be able to just feel wanting Wanting, no judgment. There is no want, no desire that shouldn't come into our mind, as far as I'm concerned. So long as we have a perspective on it. The problems come, of course, when we lose perspective and we get caught up in it. And I want means I've got to go out and get, or I don't want means I've got to go out and get rid of, or get away from. But from a practice perspective, what is encouraged is receiving the feeling, receiving the emotion, receiving the all that goes around it, all the packaging, all the ideas, the feelings, the sensations in the body, receiving it as it is with interest. It may feel irritating and it may feel frustrating, but that doesn't mean to say it's wrong. It's a, the worldly attitude is if it feels frustrating and uncomfortable, then we've got to get away from it, we've got to leave it, we've got to get rid of it, fix it. The Dhamma perspective, the practice perspective, is that we commit to practice with interest, with faith, with conviction, and then patiently bear with it. And it doesn't matter, actually. Even if we come with really strong desires, if I really don't want this, then we just look at it and receive it until we see beyond the way it appears to be. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.